Second Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll start at verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Forasmuch as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. And we'll be focusing on verses 7 to 9 from there. Let us pray. Dear Lord, great Heavenly Father, you have authored these words through the mouth of your servant Paul and allow them to, 2,000 years later, continue to bless your church that they might not simply be passing words, but that they would be enduring that through the ministry of the Spirit that you would allow them to convict us to show us our need for a Savior and to point us to Christ in this, that we would be following this better covenant, that we would see its glory, that the glory of Christ, the glory of the gospel would be ever more clear and abundant. Please, may the words spoken now be solely of your spirit and not my own, but that you might be magnified in them. And please allow your word to speak mightily. In Jesus' name, amen. I have four points I'd like to draw out of this text. And the first is fatal covenant, then fading covenant, greater covenant, and glorious covenant. The first point is fatal covenant. And that'll be starting in verse 7 there. In this passage, Paul compares two ministries, that of death and that of life. He compares the task of those serving under two covenants, the one of Moses, and the other is the new covenant. Now there's a question. Why is Paul deciding to talk about covenants here? Why is he going to spend expensive ink and papyrus talking about this? Why does the Corinthian church need to hear about this? We know from the letters written to the Corinthians that they had serious problems. Read 1 Corinthians. You'll 
see that Paul has a lot to deal with there. Fornication and adultery to apostleship and the Lord's Supper. By the time 2 Corinthians gets written, many of the Corinthians had repented. You'll see that if you keep reading. But there were those who were stubborn, who continued to question Paul's authority. In verse 1 of this chapter, Paul writes, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? We can see that the Corinthians are questioning Paul's apostleship. Who are you to speak to us this way? Now, he asks here, basically, if he needs reference letters before they'll take him seriously. In verse 2, Paul says, Ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. The work and the authority of the apostles was seen in the spread of the gospel. That was their evidence. That proved that they were of God. Verses 3 and 4 go on to explain this. The work of the Spirit in the hearts of the Corinthians shows that the new covenant was spreading, and the apostles were the ministers of that covenant. It is through their preaching and their teaching that the gospel went forth in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And God blesses and confirms the ministry of his apostles that he has sent to every corner of the world. In verse 5 of this passage, Paul reminds the Corinthians that all this fruit isn't because of who he is. It's all of God. It's God who had called these apostles and sent them to be the ministers of his new covenant. And the growth of the church, which is the new covenant community, demonstrates the calling of these apostles. Now there's a question that Paul is wanting to answer here. How do we know what the new covenant looks like? What makes it unique? And Paul begins to answer that in, in our text. He starts with saying, but if the ministration of death. The first word there is important, the word but. It's what's called an adversative. It places two thoughts against each other. Paul always very carefully structures his writing. Notice the words he uses in this section of 1 Corinthians. But if, so that, how shall not, for if. There is intention behind each of these words. It's very important to remember that purpose. Now this text says, but if this, how shall not that? The first section is used to show that the second is far better. Now this is what theologians call the a fortiori argument. And that basically means arguing from the lesser to the greater. Paul argues that if the imperfect old covenant was great and glorious, then the new covenant must be far more great and glorious. And the same goes for its ministers. Paul first describes here the ministration of death. 
What does he mean with that term, ministration of death? Clearly, as we read on, it's a covenant given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Paul calls it written and engraven in stones, which was true of the Ten Commandments. Paul mentions the glorious face of Moses. It's clear which covenant he's talking about. Now, what was this Mosaic covenant? It was the bedrock of Jewish life. It was the basis of their sacrificial system. It explained how Israel was to relate with God, with other Israelites, and with the entire world. Every aspect of the Jews' life, every moment they were alive, was informed and regulated by this old covenant. Now, it's interesting. Paul doesn't use the normal Greek word for covenant, which is diatheke. Paul chooses a different word, diakonia. It's the word for ministry. It sounds like the word for deacon, and there's a reason for that. They're both both based off of the same principle, that of ministry, that of service. And so Paul is contrasting two covenants, but he's focusing on the ministers, comparing Moses and the apostles. Now, we still have the question to ask, why does Paul call the old covenant the ministration of death? Why would God give a covenant that just leads to death? Wasn't the whole point of this old covenant that Israel would be able to have life, life in the promised land? It wasn't that they would die in their uncleanness and sin. But there was a problem. The problem is, the Mosaic covenant could not rid Israel of their sin. Hebrews 10 explains this. It says there, It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could rid of sin. If these sacrifices cleanse from sin, why do they need to keep repeating them day after day, week after week, year after year, centuries, centuries of sacrifices? And the other question, how could an animal bear the sin of a human being. While the old covenant could point out sin and the need for salvation, it didn't provide that. All it gave was the promise of a future redeemer. The commentator Matthew Poole here well puts it when he says that Paul calls the ministration of the law, the ministration of death, because it only showed man his duty or the things to be done, but gave no strength or help by which it would be done. The covenant pointed out all that we must do to enter the kingdom of heaven, but didn't give us a way to be righteous. Paul says in Galatians, By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. If we look at the next section of verse 7, it says, Written and engraven in stones. 
Exodus 31, verse 18 says that the Lord gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. It's interesting. This covenant was given by God. God initiated and started the covenant. This is just as true in the new covenant. God started it. We see from that passage from Exodus that Moses was communing with God. And how much more did Christ, who was the greater Moses, live in constant fellowship with the Father? This is what the goal of the covenant is, communion with God. That's even how it starts. God has to stoop down to our level and initiate a relationship. That's the only way that the covenant can be made. It's interesting, too, that these tables of the law were written with the finger of God. And while in the new covenant, the law isn't written on tables of stone, but it is still written with the finger of God in the fleshy tables of the heart, as you can see earlier in this chapter. Compared to a covenant that's written on stones, a covenant written on the hearts is much, much greater. That now brings us to our second point, which is fading covenant. Despite all the flaws that we've seen so far of the Old Covenant, these weren't due to God's design, mind you, but to the sins of the people. The Mosaic Covenant, though, was still glorious. It reflected the glory of its head. Indeed, you can see that when you look. All the temple artwork and all the ritual cleansing and sacrifices, all of that pointed to a holy God. They were designed to be an earthly manifestation of his glory. Now, when Paul's speaking here, he has a very particular passage in mind, and that's Exodus chapter 34. So if you will, can turn there. We'll be looking quite a bit at it. Now, for context to that, in chapters 19 to 31 of Exodus, God gives Israel the covenant using Moses as a mediator. Then in chapter 32, the golden calf episode happens. Israel is faithless there. They go back to idolatry, back to Egypt, back to sin. At that point, Moses breaks the tables of the covenant in anger at how wicked they are. In chapter 33, Moses asks for a sign of God's presence. He asks God to show his glory. God says there that man cannot see his face and live, but that he would shelter Moses and lift his hands to show his back parts. Now in chapter 34, 
First verse. The Lord asks Moses to bring up two new tables of stone. He will write the law on them again. There's no accident, speaking back to 2 Corinthians for a second, that Paul references the writing of the law along with its glory. They're very deeply connected. We see that too in Exodus 34. You'll see that in a moment. In verses 5 to 7 of chapter 34, the Lord passes by Moses in his glory and declares his name. If you're reading along, you can notice what Moses does immediately. He worships. And so it should be for all the people of the covenant. Our response to God's presence should always be worship. Now let's look at verses 29 to 35 of Exodus 34. There it says, And it came to pass, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses put the veil upon his face again, until he went in to speak with him. We see here that as Moses has communion with God, and exposure to God's glory, that that changes him. It changes him not only in a spiritual sense, but in a physical one too here. His face is now shining with a reflection of the glory of God. And the children of Israel are not able to bear looking at Moses' face here. This, which is really only a pale reflection of God, was far too much for their sinful hearts to be able to handle. The sinner cannot bear the least sight of God's glory. It shows how wretched they are in comparison with God's total purity. And Moses had to veil his face to hide God's glory. And Christ as well, who was the greater Moses, had to veil himself during his time on this earth. The sinful people of Israel there too hated how he exposed sin simply by living among them as the spotless Lamb of God. And this is true as well for the Christian, those who've been in communion with God. They reflect that in their character, in their conduct, how they live their life. You can't be spending a lot of time with God and have it go unnoticed. 
At first, just like Israel, the ungodly will be curious, will be intrigued at why you're different. But as soon as they pay attention, their sinful conscience will become apparent. They'll be repulsed, will be disgusted with the glory that the Christian reflects. And this is why the world hates the church. It has to. Just by existing, the church points out the bankruptcy of the world, that they have nothing, that all their virtue and all their feeling good about themselves is nothing. It's just a facade. It's vapor. Are you discouraged today about the hostility that you feel about your faith? Do your coworkers or your friends or your classmates mock you for being a Christian? Do they call you a zealot or a party pooper or do they call you judgmental? It's very important to remember this. The judgment that they feel is very real, but it's not yours. They feel the coming judgment of God. Remember the high calling that it is to have faith in Christ, just as Moses did. You had communion with God. Your transformed life reflects the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with open face, beholding, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And we experience the same glory that Moses did. That's the glory of the triune God. At the same time, though, going back to Second Corinthians, we see Moses' glory was temporary. It says there, which glory was to be done away. The glory that was on Moses' face, the glory of the old covenant, it was not lasting. All the rites and the rituals of the tabernacle and the temple were simply shadows of what was to come in Christ. If this ministry of the old covenant, which is but a foretaste, was glorious... How much more glorious is the ministry of the fullness of Christ's life and death? We know that the glory of the new covenant is permanent. It's unchanging. Christ doesn't need to offer up daily sacrifices. That's what the high priest had to do, which just showed how temporary it was. But... Christ did that once when he offered up himself, as it says in Hebrews. And as Christ's sacrifice is enduring, so the glory of his ministry is also enduring. Indeed, when we think about it, believers have constant access to the Father by prayer. And this just shows that it's a reminder that they have permanent 
and constant access to God. It's not going to change. And this brings us to the third point, which is greater covenant. And this brings us to verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 3. So far, we've seen five weaknesses of the Old Covenant. Calvin helpfully puts these in point form. The first is, it's a ministry of death. It doesn't give life to those who follow it. The second, it uses letters and ink. It's depending on written words to do what the Spirit needs to do. It's written on stones, not on the heart. It's temporary. And it's also a ministry of condemnation. It foretells the wrath that is to come on the sinner. But the new covenant is different. It's a ministry of the Spirit. It's an everlasting ministry. It's a ministry of righteousness. It's one that implants the gospel into the hearts of men. There might be an objection, though. Wait a second. Isn't the gospel also a ministry of death to some? Doesn't it say that Christ is a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling? And what makes it so different from the law, then? There's a very simple answer to that. The gospel transforms the heart of the Christian, and it brings new life. The law can only show the difference between the path of life and the path of death, but it can only cause death. It doesn't have any power in itself to bring life. It brings guilt and condemnation, but the gospel brings life and peace. Some people think The gospel is really rather simple. It's kind of silly. It's really more sophisticated to have elaborate philosophies and moral codes. But our text is something very different. It's arrogant to think that way. The gospel is superior to the law. Is this true in your life. Is it true that the gospel is superior to the law for you? Or do you find yourself slowly going back to legalism? Do you find yourself telling yourself, if I just do better, if I try harder, if I do all these things, then I can feel more spiritual? Or do you say, yes, I know I'm not perfect, but I was baptized, and that must count for something. Or do you wonder, if I only had more faith, then my Christian life would feel better. It's very important to remember what the gospel says. It isn't faith or baptism or good works that save It's Christ, and Christ 
alone that saves. Some people say Christians should go back to parts of the Old Covenant. They should follow the ceremonial law or the Jewish feasts or the Jewish Sabbath. Some people say there are really two ways to salvation. The Gentile is saved through the gospel, and the Jew is saved by following the Torah, the Old Testament. All of these things that I've just talked about ignore the problem. And the problem is the Old Testament is a ministry of death. We need a better way. When Christ initiated the New Covenant, all these shadows, these types, we weren't needed. There was a better way. They were all fulfilled. Now, looking at what the text says, it says, How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Paul is very emphatic here. Considering all the things we just saw about the Old Covenant, it's patently self-obvious, self-evident, that the New Covenant is so much better. Notice how he calls the New Covenant It's called the ministry of the Spirit. He could have chosen a lot of different distinguishing features. He could have called it the ministration of grace, of hope, of love, of forgiveness, of the gospel, of Christ. Why did he call it the ministration of the Spirit? Paul here is picking up on something vital. It's something you need to understand to know why the New Covenant is different. Looking back at the Old Covenant, the Spirit's work was fairly rare in Covenant members. When you read through your Old Testament, you'll see it mentions specially the work of the Spirit in particular lives. You'll see the names like Bezalel, you'll see David, Elijah. And most people in the Old Covenant did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in their life. This is what's different in the New Covenant. In John 14 and 15, Jesus says that when he must leave the disciples, he will send the Spirit to them. We see that at Pentecost in Acts 2. In fact, it's not just for the apostles. The Spirit indwells every Christian. We see that in Romans 8. And this is what makes the New Covenant unique. Every single covenant member has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Paul says just as much in verse 3 of our chapter. The Spirit writes the gospel upon the table of the heart of the Christian. This is a major reason why the New Covenant is better. In the Old Covenant, it was called a mixed community. Some were saved, some weren't. But in the New Covenant, every covenant member 
is saved and has the Spirit. Every member has the inward privileges of fellowship with the Father, union with Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and they also all have the outward privileges of real and true participation in the community of Christ and in his ordinances. We see that new covenant membership is not based on outward characteristics. What kind of good works you did, who your forefathers were, or what kind of spiritual experience you had. None of that matters. What matters is an inward reality. Have you been bought by the blood of Christ? And this is why, if the old covenant was glorious, the new covenant is so much more glorious. And the same thing goes when we remember what Paul is speaking of, ministries. If the ministry of the old covenant had glory, the ministry of the new covenant has so much more glory. And that brings us to our last point, which is glorious covenant. That's looking at verse 9. And there Paul begins to expand the conclusion that he just reached in verse 8. He reminds us that the ministry of condemnation is glorious. And the law, as we said, brings condemnation. It points out our sin and the judgment on the unrighteous. But it still has glory because it reflected God's glory and his purity. But the ministration of righteousness is exceedingly glorious. Why the word righteousness? Instead of what the law did, simply exposing unrighteousness, the gospel, yes, first uses the law to show that unrighteousness, but then it applies the righteousness of Christ to that sinner and makes him righteous before God. This gospel is such a glorious gospel this glory is what is the proof of Paul's apostleship, the glory that you could see in the life of the Corinthians. The witness that was born by God's amazing work in the church shows the work of the Spirit through Paul's ministry. What is so precious about the gospel is that the new covenant member can steadfastly behold the face of the apostle without fearing the glory they reflect because they're truly regenerate. This is what makes it different from the old covenant. There, Israel could not look at Moses' face because that glory pointed out their sin. But in the new covenant, the Christian can see the glory reflected in its ministers and look at that because they have righteousness in Christ. And this is only possible because of what the Spirit does, regenerating 
justifying, sanctifying, and ultimately glorifying. The gospel reflects the wisdom, the love, the amazing grace of a glorious God. And our praise of him cannot even add to his glory. When we praise God, we reflect the glory that he already has, just like Moses did. But what the gospel does let us do is, as the Westminster Confession says, fulfill our chief end, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what the gospel lets us do. And it is of God's great grace that he didn't just give us a law, he gave us the means to follow it. And that's not from ourselves, though. It's very important. We saw that already. It's all of Christ, his glory, his righteousness, his ministry. Is this something that's true about you? Have you been convicted about the seriousness of your sin? Do you know what the phrase ministration of death, ministration of condemnation mean? I'm not talking in an intellectual sense. Do you know what they mean for you? Do you feel the weight of your own sin? Is that a weight that you carry? Or is it one that's been lifted from your neck? Have you been united to Christ and rid of your unrighteousness? Are you, and this is really the question, are you in the new covenant? Does the Spirit of God dwell in your heart? Do you feel that conviction of your conscience and the work of the Spirit in your heart, even now, calling you to abandon your sin and flee and turn to Christ? Do not wait. Today is the hour of salvation. There is time yet, time to abandon the ministry of death and enter the ministry of life, the spirit of righteousness. Put your hope in someone outside of you. Put your hope in Christ today. If that is something, though, that's true of you now, if Christ is your hope, remember the glory of your calling. When the storms of life and the arrows of the enemy try to discourage you and turn you off the way, remember the glory of the gospel that's written in your heart. Can't get taken out of there. Remember, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Christian. And so... Your calling is to spread that name of Jesus. Spread that gospel message far and wide. Let your life 
be a testimony of his glory and righteousness to all around you. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord, it is a weighty calling that we have to have the gospel written in our hearts, to have the Spirit, but it is such a glorious calling that we might be members of a covenant with you, that we may have communion with you, that we may have the righteousness of Christ applied. So I pray that we would dwell always on Christ, always look to him, always trust his righteousness, not to do anything of ourselves, not to try to follow the law by ourselves, but instead to remember that Christ followed the law. And I pray for any that that isn't true of, that they're still either ignoring the law or trying to follow it in their own strength, that you would convict them, that you would draw them to yourself and show them the glory of Christ and his gospel and his ministry. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.